Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, June 26th. Following an attempted coup over the weekend, Russian President Vladimir Putin has accused the Wagner mercenary group of treason. We discuss how this development could impact the war in Ukraine with Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Another study that shines a not-so-flattering light on aspirin, which comes with a warning for those who take the pain reliever on a regular basis. We get details on the research from Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Did you know that suicide rates among men are three times higher than for women? June is Men's Health Month. We take the opportunity to explore the mental health resources available for men in our province with Akash Asif, Director of Strategy and Operations with the Center for Suicide Prevention. Russia may have avoided an insurrection over the weekend, but there are still a lot of questions about what actually transpired. Joining us to break down the, uh, well, what is being described as an attempted coup in the Ukraine-Russia war is Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and expert in Eastern European affairs. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? Good morning, Sue and Andy. Thank you so much for being with us. An important morning today to talk about this. What exactly transpired over the weekend? It's some fascinating information coming out of this war. Yes, you can say the, the day that shook the world. Um, so on Saturday morning, uh, Prigozhin, uh, leader of the Wagner Mercenary Group, led a revolt. Uh, this has been long brewing, uh, his dispute uh, with the Ministry of Defense, specifically Minister Shoigu and General Gerasimov, the, the top Russian soldier. Put, uh, Bukosian's gripe has been that the war has been run in an ineffective manner, that the Russian Ministry of Defense, these, these top people are corrupt and ineffective. And basically, it reached a boiling point on Saturday. Now, there was lead-ups to that. The bigger political thing for Prigozhin was the Ministry of Defense was uh, trying to get uh, the Wagner Group to sign contracts with the Ministry of Defense and formally put them under their control. Up until now, they have been sort of a semi-independent player, and that was going to kind of clip Prigozhin's political wings. Anyways, he decided that's it. He's marching, and he started. Took a, went to Rostov-on-Don. It was a major city inside of Russia, which uh, is a logistics hub for the Russian army. Came in relatively unopposed. There had been some fighting a little bit. Yes, there were some airplanes shot down and some soldiers killed. Yes. But on the whole, it was a fairly quiet operation. And then Prigozhin decided to march further toward Moscow, and he got as far as 200 kilometers south of Moscow. At which point, uh, Lukashenko, a leader of Belarus, negotiated a deal, basically avoiding what could have been a showdown, potentially a small civil war, or who knows how big of a civil war. And therefore, we had a deal Saturday afternoon that diffused the situation and basically um, uh, allowed uh, Prigozhin to go to Belarus uh, with all charges dropped, live in exile, and his troops to go back to the front line, sign those contracts with the Ministry of Defense, and all would be forgiven. Mm. That's the way it ended Saturday evening. Now, today, Monday, we have a few developments. One, what we haven't seen is Prigozhin. We haven't seen him show up in Belarus. We haven't seen him anywhere, not since Saturday late afternoon. And we also uh, don't know exactly uh, about the criminal situation because the, today the Russian prosecutor's office 
in Moscow said that the criminal case, the investigation against Prigozhin, has not been closed, which is at variance with the deal. The other point we see this morning is Minister Shoigu, the butt of Prigozhin's revolt, is shown in a film, undated, no sound, but it shows uh, Shoigu being briefed by his generals. So the signal there coming from Putin is, uh, my defense minister is still my defense minister. Because there have been questions, you know, would he be replaced? Would there be a shakeup? And that's still not a closed door on that one. But as of today, there is not a shakeup. But we'll see where that goes. And then on the foreign side of things, the Russian deputy foreign minister went to uh, Beijing and uh, received Chinese assurances that they would support Putin and uh, they called for stability in Russia. So that's where we stand Monday morning. Mm. So to have uh, Prigozhin and, uh, you know, the Wagner group uh, kind of put to the sidelines, spending time in Belarus, as quickly as this changed, Andrew, what do you think was done to, to put the brakes on this? And I've heard maybe some cash was thrown the way of the Wagner group. What do we know? Well, we just know that um, there was there was an attempt, I think both sides, but like Prigozhin on one side and Putin and the Ministry of Defense on the other side, realized that neither had the balance of forces to be decisive and that if they if this was not walked away from there could be a very bloody civil war and bad for everybody in russia including Prigozhin and so on because it could spiral spiral out of control so the idea was and this is where i think lukashenko interestingly enough played a very interesting mediator role in this to kind of calm things down basically you had a showdown and a walk back and, uh, and, and and I think it was just self-interest of all concerned not to get things spiraling out of control. And now we don't now, of course, while on the surface in Moscow today, we see stability emerging and then the, the restrictions that were imposed on the weekend uh, have been lifted generally and, and life returns to normal on the surface. But you know that behind the scenes in all the corridors of power in Russia, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of after action analysis and deal-making in terms of where we go from now. Because the shakeup of the defense ministry, well, that's still possible, but we'll see. Right now, the signal is no, no, Shoigu is in charge. But the question is, Putin has to now realize, he's in comeback mode. You can say that Putin has been down, he's, he's down but not out. So he's, he's in comeback mode. But he has got, he's now realizing that he's, he's in a difficult situation. This war has hurt him. Yeah? And the question is, will he try to end this war faster now? Because I think before he felt comfortable, he could just let it go on and on, wear out the West, wear out the Ukrainians. That question now is, can he, can he sustain it on his side now? For how long? Will he double down? Will he increase? Because he could still potentially increase Russian military action against the Ukrainians on this, in this war. Or would he be more amenable at reaching a solution mm. but then would the ukrainians be amenable to reaching a solution lots of games lots of the game is in play there's a lot of factors um this this is one day in, in many days that we're going to be watching this andrew could we call this the tsn turning point of the war do you think uh it's a, it is a historical point it is i i, I use the term that the, the day that shook the world because there is a book called the, the 10 days that shook the world which is the russian revolution which was pivotal in ending Russia's involvement in World War One. Now, we haven't got that far because this didn't blow up. It was contained, yeah? So, uh, it, but it's certainly an historical moment. 
uh, it, it, business is, is not what it was. Today, Monday, is not what it was on Friday. Mm. There's a different situation. And it's too early to predict where it's going to go. But I can tell you it's been an inflection point for sure. And, wow. and, and could this be, I know we've had an immense amount of global support for the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military and, and freedom fighters to, to, to a large extent. Could this be the, the shot in the arm and the, the sign of the, uh, the cracks in the armor of Russia to, to even increase that uh, support? Well, uh, it, uh, there's a cautionary element to this. Well, while yes, they, I mean, Biden and Zelensky spoke and he's going to, there, there's talk about enhancing the long range missile support. And there's a meeting in Copenhagen today, and there will there will be calls and, and announcements of greater Western support, which is kind of consistent to where it's been. But there's another side of that equation, uh, which is also in play now, is that over the weekend, people realized that if there is a governance implosion in Russia, who controls the nuclear arsenal? And this is a question that was raised in 1991 during the, the coup attempt on Gorbachev. Uh, that's a very serious problem, and nobody wants a governance implosion in Russia. The West wants the Ukrainians to succeed against the Russians. They want the Russian government to be weaker, the economy to be weaker, the military to be weaker, but not an implosion, because an implosion works against everyone's interests because of the nuclear dimension. So it's a balance, and I think in Copenhagen uh, they're going to be talking about how do we how do we balance on the knife's mm-hmm. edge here. Fascinating ongoing discussion. We'll be chatting with you again, no doubt. Thank you so much for breaking it down, Andrew. Appreciate it. You're, you're very welcome. Glad to join you again. Thank you, Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, expert in Eastern European affairs. Another week and another study which involves aspirin, <laughs> and the latest research comes with a warning for those who use the pain reliever on a regular basis. With details on this study, we are joined by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. Tell us about this recent report, another report uh, surrounding aspirin. Yes, this is one in many uh, where aspirin is taking a bit of a hit. So this was a study tracking 19,000 patients for approximately seven years and looking for adverse events from a group that took aspirin versus ones that did not take aspirin. And in above age 60, uh, the aspirin group definitely had more GI bleeds and were more anemic. So the the big headline from this study is that uh, aspirin users are more likely to have low iron and low uh, lower hemoglobin or anemia uh, compared to their their uh, their cohorts that are not taking aspirin on a regular basis. So aspirin can cause anemia is the takeaway line. My gosh, the debate over aspirin has been back and forth and ongoing yeah. for so many years. So, I mean, what's your take on it? Do we stop using aspirin with so many other pain relief alternatives out there? Yes, it would be the, the short answer. Uh, there are better alternatives now for pain relief. So this study points out very clearly, if you're using this for a cardiovascular event reduction, meaning you've had a heart attack, you've had a stroke, you've been prescribed aspirin, then absolutely keep on it. You take the risk of aspirin with that. But if you're using it for any other purpose, particularly over age 60, I use it for headaches, I use it uh, because I think it's gonna make me healthy or thin my blood, et cetera. That's probably not a good idea if you have no cardiovascular risk uh, attached to this. You've not had events, you don't have disease. You're just using it to 
potentially prevent uh, a future event that might not be a wise strategy any longer. I'm just wondering, and this is something I brought up earlier in the program when I said you'd be coming on talking about aspirin once again, and, and uh, is this a case that aspirin's been around for so long that we've had so many opportunities to study it? Yes, I think uh, they, the the urban myth, and maybe it's true actually, is that if aspirin came to market today, it would never be uh, passed. It would never make it wow. to market because it has actually too many risk uh, risk factors. So it's actually really not a great drug, but it's been sort of grandfathered in. It's been around forever. It does have a place. It does have a use. So it continues to chug along, even though. Uh, if there was a new drug, it probably would be a, a safer drug. It would be a better drug than what we have in aspirin. Wow. So, okay, so let's overall study is done. It's not the first one. So you as a, a physician, you would not prescribe this as a pain relief alternative to your patients. Correct. I would only use this uh, particularly in a patient post heart attack or a post particular types of stroke where we're using this uh, for its so-called antiplatelet effect. We're trying to have platelets not um, coagulate the blood, and that's the only reason we would use it, not for any other reason. And that's very different for, for somebody who's uh, very elderly who's used aspirin as their go-to for you know back pain or for headache or for whatever reasons people would use it uh, for its more its pain-relieving property. Perfect. Uh, a great texture from Raffalina, which I think a lot of people still have in their mind, and we've been told for quite some time. Raffalina says, can you still take two baby aspirins if you feel like you're having a heart attack? Well, if somebody was having chest pain and we truly thought it was angina, like a heart attack, uh, you can't chew, chew aspirin uh, before the ambulance comes, and that's a good strategy. But this is when somebody is chest-crushing, uh, chest pain and they're sure it's a heart attack and you're calling 911 this isn't hmm, that could this be a heart attack as i'm walking or something no this would be uh i'm absolutely convinced i have a heart attack um that would again that's a very particular use and that's that wouldn't be very often or you hope it wouldn't be very often uh, Dr. J. Matthew texted in to say my girlfriend is pregnant the doctor prescribed her aspirin to take every day for risk of preeclampsia so that's a very particular indication. Again, right. And, and we would accept the, the potential risk of a GI upset or or uh, like a, uh, having a lower blood count in that context. But again, that's a very, very particular use and one that we don't do often. So I guess talk to your family doctor mm-hmm. and when it comes to any pain relief or reliever. And uh, is it is it different, you know, when it comes to the younger set and the kids? I know there's so many different pain relievers for adults, but it seems to have been restricted over the past a number of years. Uh, and I guess when you're giving your child or a small child medication, that's uh, very much important to talk to the physician. Absolutely. And again, aspirin uh, causes uh, Rye syndrome, which is a very particular syndrome in kids with um with flu-like illnesses. So aspirin's a real no-no in kids, you know, speaking specifically with aspirin. But it's funny, there are a lot of over-the-counter OTC drugs that are actually really dangerous and really have to be used very, very uh, properly. Um, And again, aspirin probably should not be OTC anymore. It should be a prescribed drug on a prescription because of the potential issues it does have. Thank you for breaking it down, Dr. J. Appreciate your time this morning, as always. Okay, you betcha. Have a great day. Dr. Ted Jablonski is our on-call family physician.
Why are suicide rates among men three times higher than women? Joining us to discuss the resources available to help curb this disturbing stat is Akash Asif, Director of Strategy and Operations at the Centre for Suicide Prevention. Good morning to you, Akash. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, so it is Men's Health Month. We're going to talk about the Buddy Up campaign, but I mean, is there anything that you can specifically point to that explains why suicide rates are so high with men compared to women? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's important to highlight, first of all, that uh, suicide is complex and there's not one reason for why someone may be considering suicide. Uh, However, there are some factors that uh, can be associated with, uh, for my men as a group, uh, are at a high risk of suicide. And I think it really stems from a lot of the time there's societal pressures around men to be expected to be stoic, right? We're told a lot of the times that weakness will diminish our manlyhood, for instance, and there's this expectation that we'll persevere through adverse situations. So no matter how difficult times get or no matter what the challenges are, just keep chugging along because you're not allowed to show emotion. You're not allowed to show how tough and how difficult things are for you. So due to these expectations, oftentimes men are reluctant and less likely to seek help when they are struggling. And that's really where if they're struggling to ask for help, we are really focusing on offering help instead and noticing someone, noticing changes in behavior and asking them what's going on. And that's sort of the premise of our Buddy Up Communications campaign. We'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the Buddy Up campaign, resources and in, in those things that people can access in a, in a minute, Akash. But, but to go back to, to, to suicide and when it comes to men and mental health, it seems to me from my perspective that over the past you know, a couple of decades even, the conversations surrounding mental health have very much opened up the fact that, you know, somebody could see a therapist, a psychologist, what, whatever it may be. Is this uh, not ju- has that just not permeated as, as much for men? I think overall, uh, we, we've definitely come a long ways, but there is still stigma around, around suicide as well there. And I think that's really around uh, encouraging people to and encouraging everyone, not just psychologists and professionals, but everyone has a role to play in suicide prevention. So whether it's your friends, your family, people around you, being able to pay attention to the people around you, notice changes in behavior and be able to start those conversations, connect people to resources. And I think that's really the premise of it is we as a society really as a culture have to make it easier to have people seek out help when they are struggling but at the same time, building an environment where it's easy to ask, hey, I don't see that you've come for wings lately or you haven't done something lately. You haven't been texting me lately. Are you doing okay? And making it less awkward to offer help as well when you are worried about someone. So it kind of goes both ways. It's easy to offer help, but also that makes it easier to seek out help when you're struggling as well. Yeah, I think I like that's that. where we're trying to get to. I like that a lot. Tell us a little bit more about the, the Buddy Up campaign then during Men's Health Month. How, how, can, how does anybody get involved? Is it, is it just for guys? No, anyone can get involved. So uh, the campaign is focused on men's suicide prevention, but uh, anyone can become involved and sign up as a champion on our website here, not just men. A lot of our champions are uh, of other genders as well there. And you can sign up as an organization or you can sign up as an individual. And really, June is Buddy Up Month because it coincides, like you said, with Men's Health Month and Father's Day. So throughout the month, we encourage people to participate in what we call the June Challenge. So that's just doing activities that drive connection and promote well-being. So little things like, hey, go grab a coffee with a buddy or share a joke with a buddy or 
just go and exercise with the buddies. So the little connection points that we want to just deepen relationships, deepen that sense of belonging, and then that can lead to organic conversations. That can lead to, hey, you're not doing something. They're not, not doing too well. Do you want to have a conversation? So that's really the premise of June, the June challenge. And anyone can sign up to become a champion on buddyup.ca to learn more about the activities and along of the different challenges that happen, not just throughout June, but throughout the year as well. And this is, it's, it's not a pressure thing, is it, Akash? When you, when you do the buddyup.ca slash the buddyup campaign and, and, and to that challenge, you're not, it's, it's about raising awareness and opening conversation. It's not like someone's going to quote unquote win. Absolutely. No, it's not all about that at all. It's just all about just going ahead and just driving connection, getting people to talk to each other, to do fun things together. It's not about winning. It's just about opening and building strong relationships with each other that go beyond just the surface. So that's really where the campaign tagline comes in. How are you really doing? It's sort of what we're trying to grasp at here. Akash, give us that website once again, please. Yeah, it's www.buddyup.ca. Pretty easy, buddyup.ca. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks. Akash Asif is the Director of Strategy and Operations at the Centre for Suicide Prevention, buddyup.ca. Important that we get online. And just, you know, we have to keep talking about it. Women, I think, are getting better at it. Men, it's a little bit more difficult for you. But And the thing is, I was going to ask him about the uh, across the globe. Like, this is not a... uh, Calgary, Alberta, Canada-specific mm-hmm. issue. This no. is about the way that men have, have been seen, men have been viewed, expectations of men. And I'm going to get a little ph- philosophical here, and this might sound like, woe is me being a man that our opportunities, uh, they're, they're, they have not dwindled. We have the same, you know, kind of path we've always had. Women have had more opportunities, and rightfully so, over the past 50 years. In the sense, you go back further, women were not able to vote even. You look at the opportunities in the workplace. It, it's, it's gaining is it exactly when it comes to pay parity, not the case, but things we're fighting for. But men have, and this is a good thing, expanded their roles in parenting. Yes. used to be mom would be home, dinner would be on the mm-hmm. table, dad would throw his hat on the rack, grab a bourbon, and sit down and watch TV, <laughs> right? Until, in the olden days, good yes. night kids, and mom would... So we have expanded our roles. We've taken taken on more, and it's not just the mom and dad role; it's the parent role, mm-hmm. and it's the doing things different. I had to, I just I washed it off. Uh, oh, I got it all off. I had my nails painted by my kids on the weekend. Awesome! And I had blue and pink, and you know, I, I don't. My dad would have he's playful. He would have done the same thing. But I know that certain dads, and over the years, never had their nails painted no. and, and done these things. And and, and, and you it, certainly would not speak yeah. and say anything that might make you look or sound That's right. weak. And I'm I'm the one who packs uh, my uh, uh, grade one students' lunch most of the time, just because I have that time. And I cook the meal. So our roles have expanded, mm-hmm. and there could be kind of an identity crisis for men in 2023. And maybe this has been happening for quite some time. I, I think be the macho man, yeah. Be the breadwinner, and then what? Your wife makes more than you. Wow, how do you are you equipped with that? Because with grandpa and with my dad, that wasn't the case. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting. But why talk about it? And men t- tend to hold up, right? I think it is better. You're right, but it is still, you know, guys, men don't cry. Real men don't cry. And I, I think we need to teach that to our to our kids, to our yeah. grandkids. It is okay. You've got to get your emotions out. You're going to be sick inside, and one of those sicknesses ultimately ends up sometimes, you yeah. know, in the case of suicide. So with we need rights. to talk about it. It's funny as a wedding officiant was just kind of popped into my head, but I'll often talk to the couple and I'll, I'll ask them, do you want to do your own personal vows? Well, no, the guy doesn't want to because he's afraid to cry. 
And that's just one. You've heard that. Oh, a million wow. times over. But, you know, like, it's okay. And there are certain circumstances where it's super okay. Everybody expects you to cry, both men and women. And when, if you don't, maybe that's a sign. Yeah, and maybe so. But we need to keep talking about it. And there's where buddyup.ca comes in, right? I love it.